I'm Brittany Hardin-Tangway, a manager with KPMG, and I am fascinated by the practice of transfer pricing and its impact on the global market. Join me each episode as I explore the transfer pricing world with specialists who will explain the ins and outs of this niche practice where tax meets economics. Continuing on our industry series, looking at transfer pricing in various industries, today we're bringing things to life with <laughs> life sciences. I have with me Molly Manier, a transfer pricing principal and our senior industry lead for life sciences based in Atlanta. Hi, Brittany. Great to be with you. And also Ray Che, a transfer pricing managing director based out of Philadelphia. Hello, Brittany. Thank you both for being here. I think it's really interesting that at one point in your lives you were interested in becoming doctors. Is that right? A number of years ago, yes. I just always thought that was a very noble profession and had relatives that were in the field, and that was something that I was really drawn to. Yep, same here. Toward the end of my high school, I was really considering going to medical school. There was a program in China. It's an 80-year-long program, but you go all the way through to MDE. In the end, I chose economic and finance. Well, I think both of your passions for life sciences gives you such valuable insights into the complex world of TP in the life science industry. So let's get started by framing that industry. Yep, the life science industry, the definition can be really broad. They're the pharmaceutical sector, medical devices, outsourcing. There are also some other companies that manufacture maybe nutraceutical, that kind of products, which can be considered a separate sector. We also have a large number of biotechnology companies. And of course, the life science industry does not operate on a standalone basis. There are also other industries and sectors which are highly relevant, for example, healthcare, retail, industrial manufacturing and technology. Broadly speaking, these are part of this whole ecosystem. It's not a monolith. Some people, they think life sciences equals pharmaceutical products, and that's not true. Even within medical devices, you have different classes. And then we have companies that specialize in outsourcing certain activities, like your clinical trials. It takes multi-billions of dollars to discover and develop a drug. Well, a lot of that money is spent on clinical trials before getting drug approval, and there are companies that specialize in executing clinical trials. It's a sprawling industry. We spend a lot of our time in the pharmaceutical sector but it does include a lot of those different subsectors. Yeah, that's very expensive. But it seems like there are natural breaks because with transfer pricing, we're looking at transactions between related parties and the regulations make life sciences unique. Tell us more about that. The regulatory aspect of this is from start to finish. That is definitely a defining feature of the industry. It governs discovery, the clinical trial process, getting the approval in different markets, which each have their own regulatory authority that grants approval to sell products into that market, all the way through how products can be sold and marketed. And you have to meet these local regulatory requirements, which differ by jurisdiction. In addition to there being the start to finish regulatory requirements, there's also very interconnected nature of the industry and what's driving value. If we want to break the value chain down into several elements or components, we can do the same. For specifically the pharmaceutical industry, we see a operating model with three elements. One's R&D, two is a supply chain, three is a commercialization. There are different types of drugs or therapy within this industry. And depending on the nature of the drug or therapy, we're talking about the relative importance of these three elements are in the supply chain of commercialization and how these three elements really work with each other can be quite different. For some of the traditional types of therapies, we may see there's a linear handoff process. The R&D team started with designing a molecule, 
design some preclinical work, design the clinical trials. Once they finish this, they hand off to the supply chain team who's going to figure out how to scale up the manufacturing productions and then who will hand off to the commercialization team for the marketing distribution. But recently, for some of the more complex therapies, we are starting to see these R&D supply chain commercialization functions really getting integrated. And typically, for example, diagnosis and prescription and the decision to give a patient certain type of therapy may require joint efforts among the different functions. So largely speaking, the three elements are the same, R&D, supply chain commercialization, but the relevant importance how they work together with each other can be quite different. Something that piqued my curiosity was about quantifying value, especially in this industry where you're talking about saving lives. Is this something you find a challenge? Yeah, it's a very dynamic, research-intensive field. Precision medicine is a very hot topic in the industry. That has evolved out of the mapping of the human genome and now a focus on being individualized medicine where <laughs> we talk about supply chain here, the buzzword is vein-to-vein supply chain because you're starting essentially in many cases cases with either patient's blood or donated blood. And then there is a process that I can't do justice to, but essentially the blood is reinfused into the patient in a way that you can have a targeted gene therapy. But the bottom line with that is now we're talking about cures, whereas before in many cases we're treating symptoms with drugs. Now we're talking about curative therapies. And you talk about a really interesting and existential dilemma. How do you price a curative therapy? And so this has given rise to the advent of treatments that cost millions of dollars. And they're able to get that price reimbursed because they're able to compare to the societal benefit of saving lives or improving the outcome such that these patients don't have to have care for their entire life. You do get into some interesting existential issues here when you get into the economics of the life sciences industry. But thankfully, that's not where we have to spend a lot of our time. <laughs> so we accept the price as a market price and we work from there to say, okay, given that that value that is now captured by the innovator, then how do we divide it up between the manufacturing process, the discovery, the patents, the way that they reach patients to get them on these therapies? Given that we have this cure and it's worth this much in the market, how do we then parse out the value chain from there? In the world of transfer pricing, in a lot of situations, it really depends on the specific facts and circumstances. Traditionally, going back maybe 10 years, there's a lot of emphasis on the R&D process in this industry. This is very complex, risky, time-consuming, and also expensive. The focus is really on the safety and efficacy of the drugs. Even nowadays, on average, it may still take 10 years or even longer for a company to fully develop a new drug, and the cost may well exceed $2 billion. And this is in the case where a company is able to successfully develop a drug and receive regulatory approval, whereas most attempts will fail somewhere during the journey. So historically, there has been a lot of emphasis on R&D processes. But as Molly mentioned, right now, there are different types of therapies available. Some of them can be involved with fairly simple manufacturing processes. Others are becoming more complex. And for some of the most recent therapies, like the vein-to-vein therapies, the steps can be highly manual, highly complex, and the manufacturing cost can be really high. So in those situations, activities related to the supply chain can even become a barrier to entry to prevent competitors to come into competing in the same space. The value chain, the importance of different components definitely evolving over time.
Radio is something that's really fundamental for transfer pricing that really distinguishes the industry is it's that history of very risky, very expensive R&D that takes place on average 10 years before you get the first dollar of commercial sale. Once you have a commercialized product and you look at that as the payoff, it looks enormous. If you look at an operating margin for a branded prescription pharmaceutical product that's on patent, margins are really rich. That attracts a lot of scrutiny and controversy when people see what seems to be really high levels of profit. Because if you look at the cost of manufacturing a drug back in the old days when it was largely small molecule, it's very small compared to the actual price. There's a lot of embedded intangible value in the price of a branded prescription pharmaceutical product. So you have a large pool of mobile profit to argue about. But it's that big risk and investment that even extends into the launch of the product that comes before the payoff. And that's what sometimes gets lost in those conversations. So we have our three primary functions, R&D, research and development, supply chain, commercialization. And because of the high exorbitant risk that R&D function demands in order to be successful, do you see that most multinational enterprises in this space are more centralized in order to assume all of that risk when things don't go as hoped? I think one of these things that distinguishes the industry is a lot of the R&D and the early stage, the risky stuff, gets acquired because the later stage R&D does get to be so expensive and it is hard dodge. So you do find a lot of acquisitions that are driven by big pharma wanting to let someone else take the early stage risk. So there is a lot of acquisition of assets throughout the industry at different stages. There's also a lot of licensing arrangements and collaboration arrangements within the industry because of that, not only sharing of financial risk, but also finding the right expertise for a specific targeted therapeutic area or area of focus for the company. So there is more activity both in the acquisition space and the licensing space than you might see in other industries, which gives us a nice point of reference for transactional data that's not a luxury that other industries enjoy. In response to all of this, does it seem that tax authorities would want their respective local entity to get paid a lot or own some of the IP? And I guess in addition to spreading out some of the R&D risk, I guess it also spreads out some of the tax audit risk. Yeah, you actually touched on a very interesting question. You mentioned IP. Within the pharmaceutical industry, there's always an inherent question, what really constitutes IP? When you design a molecule, antibody, and you can file some kind of patents for that. That's definitely some valuable IP. But in the meantime, as the manufacturing, for example, process becomes more complex, there could be a process manufacturing know-how associated with the manufacturing processes. And then when it comes to commercialization, this is another interesting topic. People have been discussing a lot about whether marketing IP exists in this industry. So there are just a whole suite of issues when it even come to the basic definition of what constitutes IP in this industry. So going back to the example that we've kind of been walking through, the branded pharmaceutical products for humans, and how many people call ibuprofen anything but Advil? <laughs> but I guess the marketing does kind of seem interconnected in the fact that people identify the branding with the benefit. Well, now you've identified yet another subsector of the industry. Oh. Now you're talking about <laughs> over-the-counter medications. Oh. And maybe, yeah, so there may be more value in the brand name for those than is. So absolutely, the fact that there's different ways to frame value depending on what sector you're talking about. Most doctors don't really know or care about brand names for 
prescription drugs. They're just looking at the literature and the conferences where key opinion leaders may come out and talk about a breakthrough therapy. So they're very good to, is my patient going to be successful on this drug or not? And that more than a big brand name for a big pharmaceutical company is the key determinant. And it gives rise to a super interesting discussion about what does constitute a marketing intangible, because if you look at what big pharmaceutical companies spend on sales and marketing, it's more than they spend on R&D. They wow. wouldn't spend it if they didn't need to. And a lot of that goes into a feature of the industry we haven't really talked about, which is the detailing. Companies will employ relatively large headcount around what sales reps that go and visit doctors and bring samples of the drug and talk about the literature. And again, a highly regulated message around the safety and efficacy of the drug. So there's been a lot of debate around, does that constitute a marketing intangible? And you can certainly see there may be different ways to view that. A lot of companies that use an LRD or a limited risk distributor structure that still have the sales reps in their jurisdiction, those tax authorities would like to say, yes, that's a marketing intangible. But the counter to that is, well, they're really just executing on a controlled message and they're really, in many cases, just bringing the product. So what intangible are they actually creating? Interesting debates and discussions can be had on that. This also goes to the controlled regulatory nature covering every single aspect of this whole industry. So Brittany, you gave the example of these over-the-counter brands where I can just go to a drugstore, pick up a bottle, and I can pick whichever brand I like better. But the vast majority of this industry is the branded ethical pharmaceuticals. These are only available from medical professionals. If I have a certain medical needs, I go to see my doctors who will write a prescription and I can only get the drugs based on that. I, as the person who needs this medicine, is the ultimate end user of the drug. But my doctors, they make the decisions, which is why Molly mentioned the company directs their sales and marketing efforts toward these medical professionals. And the other thing that's very interesting is that in the United States, we can see advertisement about the certain drugs on TV, on YouTube. So those marketing efforts are geared actually toward the regular consumers like us, even if we don't make the ultimate decision. In many other countries, this is actually not allowed. So in many or most jurisdictions outside the U.S., you wouldn't see advertisement about oncology, about the rheumatoid arthritis drug on TV. Yeah, maybe Xanax would have been a better example. <laughs> And that also brings up another point, because thinking about what's the price of a drug that different people are going to uh, pay different things based on insurance and, you know, and is that really? really this know, is so an I, excellent yeah. point. This is why we made a mention, although we focus on the pharmaceutical <laughs> drug industry, healthcare is one part of this, you know, system for sure. Because if you look at the U.S., who is ultimately paying for these? It's some of the private sector, Medicare, Medicaid. And some of the private insurance companies, to a certain extent, the patients themselves as out-of-pocket expenses and other sources. And I would start to laugh when you raise the question because, again, drug pricing is such an important topic. Most of the countries in the world also have a strict restriction on the drug prices, both the initial launch price as well as the price in subsequent years. And in many countries, the pharmaceutical companies have to engage in price negotiation after they got the regulatory approval. And then this negotiation may need to happen every two, three, five years. And in most cases, the price will either stay flat or actually decrease. The United States is another outlier. In fact, the U.S. is one of the few countries with almost no price control for the past decades. Back in August 2022, the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. And for the first time ever, the U.S. federal government will have some authority to negotiate prices with the drug manufacturers. 
In addition, this Inflation Reduction Act also introduced some additional provisions as to how much the pharmaceutical companies can increase the prices over the years. Therefore, in the next few years, we're definitely going to see some interesting movement when it comes to the price in the commercialization aspect of the industry. Which is almost certain to influence how we measure and distribute profits through transfer pricing. Molly, what other influences on the industry should we be paying attention to? The industry does seem to be transforming based on this latest innovation around precision medicines. Some big pharma companies are saying in the not-too-distant future, they expect to earn 50% of their revenues from precision medicine. That is a completely different value proposition than what was available in the past. And it's also really exciting just in terms of cures and addressing some really severe disease states. It's a whole new set of value drivers. It brings non-traditional players. Players from the healthcare space are now participating in that value chain. It's a fundamental transformation. And then I think maybe a variation on that is the digitalization of the industry that is happening in every industry, but the ramifications within life sciences are pretty significant when you get into the med device space. Thank you both, Ray and Molly, for joining me. This has been fascinating. It was a pleasure. Obviously, we're a bit nerdy about it, so thanks for your patience with us as we dragged you down numerous rabbit holes. Well, thank you so much, Brittany, to have the opportunity for us to speak to you about this. Thanks for joining me on this adventure in transfer pricing. See you next time.